0: Oh man, well, this is, it is such a special Sunday, um, what a glorious thing to, to celebrate with, uh, with Andrew and Matt there, and um, on behalf of everyone here at the church, um, I just want to say that we, we deeply love um, these guys, and it's just been such a, an honor and privilege to, um, to see their journeys really, um, with God, and, and, and you know, I, I can just think of like multiple Examples of like how they've really spurred me on in, in my own faith, so just really grateful for them. Um, so my name's Frank. I'm one of the uh, elders here, and I'm going to take us through our passage for today. Um, and I just want to acknowledge at this point that I know that um, you know, there's people here today that are, that are guests um, who uh, might not call themselves Christians, um, and I just want to kind of acknowledge that. And I just want to say that I've I've tried as best I can to. Um, to gear this message um, with, with pe- people like yourselves in mind. And, and I've tried to cut out as much of the kind of Christian jargon as I possibly can and, and try and, uh, and make it kind of as easy, as, as easy to follow as possible. So I just wanted to put that out there. And I want to, if you aren't a Christian here, and if maybe you would say you're an atheist or an agnostic or you're a seeker, I want you to put yourself through a little thought experiment. Just bear with me on this. I want you to imagine that the, that the God that Christians say the Bible talks about is, is real. And that he does exist. And then I want you to go a step further than that. And I want you to imagine that that God chose, out of everywhere on the whole earth, to make his home in the Climate Pledge arena. Just, just imagine that for a second. Now here's my, here's my next question. If God was in the Climate Pledge arena would you go down there and approach him? And if you would, how would you approach him? See, Jesus tells a story in the Bible passage that we're going to look at today about two people that approach God. And then Jesus says that as they leave that place, he says only one of them went home right with God. And we're going to dig into why that is in these next few moments together. So it should come up on the screens, the passage for today. It's Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I'll give you a moment to pull it up if you're reading it on a, on a Bible or on your phone, and then I'll go ahead and read it. Okay. Luke 18, 9 to 14. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable... To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other people greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm just going to quickly ask that God would help us as we go through this passage together. Father God, we thank you for this day, thank you for the glorious sunshine, thank you uh, for all the, the glorious sights around us. It's such a privilege and, and what a blessing to live in, the, in a city like this, Lord, it's your glory is everywhere, and uh, we thank you for this, this day, this time together, and we thank you so much for the gift of baptism and for what it shows, God, and I really do pray, Lord, that as we take some time now just to think about this, this really interesting passage, this story that Jesus tells, God, I just pray that you would um, just open up our minds and hearts to, to hear what you're saying in these words, and that we would respond in your name. Amen. So if you wanted to split this passage into different sections, you could split it up a bit like this. So the first point is two very different men go to the same place. It's verse 10. And the second point would be two very different approaches to God. Verses 11 to 13. And then the third point would be two very different outcomes. Verse 14. So let's look at the first of those three points then. Two men... Two very different men go to the same place. So who are these two men? Well, first man in Jesus' parable is a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? Well, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were like the religious elite. They were at the top of the spiritual pyramids. Pharisee literally means separate one. They were separate from the rest. They were a cut above And they belonged to a social movement and a school of thought. And the Pharisees, some of them at least, had a superiority complex. And they distanced themselves from those that they labeled sinners, which were people who didn't follow God like they did. The second man in Jesus' parable is a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors in biblical times They were regarded as sinners. If the the Pharisees were at the top of the pyramid, then the the tax collectors were at the bottom. And why were they at the bottom? Well, they were Jewish people, just like the Pharisees, but they worked for the Roman government. And the Romans were the ones that were occupying that plot of land, that, that particular part of the world at that time. So the Jews saw the Romans as this occupying force, and the tax collectors worked for the Romans. Now, the tax collectors didn't actually get paid by the Romans. Here's how it was supposed to work. The tax collectors would go around to their fellow countrymen, and they would take the taxes, but then they were allowed to take extra. And from that extra, that's kind of how they paid themselves. And what often happened, as you can imagine, was that the tax collectors took a lot more than they should have done. So they were getting rich, they were lying in their own pockets, at the expense of their fellow Jewish Jewish people. And it cost them their reputations. They might have been rich, but everybody looked at them and despised them. So in many ways, these two men were completely opposite ends of the spectrum. In first-century society's eyes, they were opposite ends of that spiritual scale. If the Pharisees were as close to the top as you could get, then the tax collectors were at rock bottom. If anybody was said to be close to God, it would be the Pharisees. If there was anyone that was going to be said to be far from God, it would be the tax collectors. So Jesus tells us that these two very different men, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, they both go to the same place. And that place is the temple. So in in the first century AD, the city of Jerusalem was set up in such a way that the temple held this this special place. And it was up on a hill, which is why Jesus says that both men went up to the temple. The Jewish people had been worshipping at the temple for centuries. If you want to read about the temple being constructed, you can look it up in 1 Kings chapter 6-9, to 9, under the leadership of King Solomon. And then you can also read, if you look at 1 Kings 10, it says that when they finished building the temple, it says that God's presence and glory filled the inner sanctuary of the temple. So think about, think about my, my kind of silly little analogy of God coming and dwelling in the climate pledge arena. The Bible here tells us that God actually was pleased to come and dwell in the temple. So as you can imagine, the temple had an incredibly special place in the minds and hearts of the Jewish people at that time. And see, the temple was not just a special place, but it was also designed in such a way that was deeply symbolic. So for any architects in the room, you can think of one or two. Buildings can tell stories, and that's exactly what the temple does. It should come up on the screen, a um, depiction here. So you'll see that there's different zones, different, different areas in the temple. And as you start on the outermost parts, you kind of work your way further and further and further towards the middle. So the outmost area is where the Gentiles were allowed to go. So that's the court of the Gentiles. Then you go in through the balustrade and you've got the women's court, which is where Jewish women were allowed to go. Then you go further still and you get the court of Israel, where Jewish men could go. And then beyond this was a zone that only the priests could go. And then it isn't marked on this this image, or it isn't written, sorry, on this image, but you've got the Holy of Holies, which is... If you, look at, if you look at the image, like right in the very, very middle, there's like a T, a kind of like a T-shape. That is what was said to be the holy of holies. And that was where God's presence was said to dwell. And there was only one person that was allowed to go into that space, and it would just be once a year. So one person, once a year. And that would be the high priest on a day called the Day of Atonement. And sacrifices would be made on behalf of the people And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And this is the place that the Pharisee and the tax collector both go. And this brings us to our second point. They both have two very different approaches. Two very different approaches to God. Verses 11 to 13. So let's start with the Pharisee's approach. The Pharisee. The Pharisee starts by talking about everybody else's unworthiness. He says this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So here's one of the fundamental problems in the Pharisee's approach. He has the audacity to play the judge, to say these people are in and these people are out. And he's already made up his mind. Who's on the outside and who's on the inside? Who's in relationship with God and who isn't? He lists them out. He says the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterers, even this tax collector. He puts them all in a category that they're too immoral for God. Too broken, too sinful. God's not going to accept these people, says the Pharisee. Now, we can, be, we can kind of be tempted to laugh at the Pharisee's statement before God. Thank you that I'm not like other people. But before we chuckle to ourselves, we've got to ask whether we sometimes have that same attitude. After all, there's a mini Pharisee hiding in every last one of us. I was thinking to myself about how this looks in my own life. Come with me to the I-5, which, by the way, if if there's anywhere that that states that we live in the Wild West, it is the I-5. People weaving in and out of traffic. There's one bloke on the far left-hand lane doing 50 miles an hour. There's a bloke on the far right-hand lane doing 90 miles an hour. None of it makes any sense. And it really annoys me as a Brit, because we we drive properly in Britain, all right? We, we, we 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 know how to drive. So I'm driving along and I'm thinking, thank God that I'm not like these other drivers. These guys are, are miserable. What are they even doing? What about when I'm on Instagram? My heart can so easily say, thank God that I don't post videos like that guy. What is he doing? Like, Why is he posting that? Who, who would want to look at that? And then I might read the news and my heart can so easily say, Thank God I'm not like people who vote that way. You see, we can easily spot the ugliness in the Pharisee's heart, but we, we must examine our own hearts daily for the same type of attitudes that might be forming in us. You see, the Pharisee drew near to God with a presumption of superiority. He points out all the bad things that others, others are doing. Why does he do that? So that he will look better in comparison. The the Pharisee approaches God with a presumption that he is better than the rest. And the, the smaller that he can make other people look, the bigger that he's going to look in comparison. So then he moves from other people's unworthiness and then he starts talking about his own worthiness. So after after shining a light on other people's shortcomings, the Pharisee turns the light onto himself. And in verse 12, we read that he gives God two examples of his obedient devotion. The first is fasting, and the second is tithing. Now he says that he fasts twice a week, which isn't actually a biblical command. Fasting is a biblical concept, but there's no, nowhere in the Bible that says you have to twi- fast twice a week. So it was like an optional extra. And it was something that a lot of the Pharisees did because they thought that by doing so, it kind of, again, like, kind of sets them apart from everybody else. And tithing, tithing means to give away 10% of all that you earn. Tithing literally means a tenth in Hebrew. Malachi 3.10 says this, bring a full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Why are these the two examples that the Pharisee chooses? Why does he choose fasting and tithing? Well, these two examples give him the ability to quantify his own goodness. See, he could have said, I've got compassion for the poor. Or he could have said, I've got zeal for God's glory. But how do you quantify compassion and zeal? It's much easier to appraise your own goodness if that godliness consists in doing a certain thing a certain number of times. It's like starting a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet with God. Have I fasted twice a week? Yes, write it down, check the box. Have I given away 10%? Yes, write it down, check the box. And so that Excel spreadsheet begins to get populated. But the tragedy here is that in focusing on what can be counted, the Pharisee has completely missed the heart of God. The prophet Isaiah wrote about the problem that we see in the Pharisees' approach to God. In Isaiah 29 13, it says this The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches, but their speeches to honor me with lip service. Yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules dictate their worship of me. You see, the Pharisee pointed God to the fact that he fasted twice a week. But that wasn't actually a command that God ever gave. Fasting twice a week, to use Isaiah's words, is a human rule. Whilst tithing was a biblical command... Isaiah also teaches us that it's possible to give only to say that you've given, not because it flows out of a posture of worship before God. And here is another warning for us. It's possible to have all the outward signs of a godly life, and yet on the inside, your heart tells a different story. You can be a person who outwardly checks all the boxes, you can attend a weekly prayer meeting, you can volunteer at a soup kitchen, you can campaign for social justice, you can stay after church meals to hoover the floor, you can give up your time to help paint the church building. The list could go on and on and on. But here's the thing, it's, it's possible to do all the right things with hearts that are still cold and distant from God and others. You see, we cannot hide anything from God. The Bible teaches us that God is omniscient, which, which means he knows everything. And he knows what's going on in here. He isn't one to be fooled. The Bible teaches that the heart is so much more than just an organ that pumps blood to the body. The Bible teaches that our hearts are the core of our entire being. And it's what makes us truly us. It's like our essence. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. See, ultimately, the problem that this Pharisee made is that he had an inflated view of himself and a deflated view of God. He came to God trusting in himself showing how drastically out of touch he was with the condition of his own heart. Romans chapter 3, 23 puts it bluntly. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, this verse is a, it's a dose of reality to anyone who's trying to put their, own, their faith in their own works, to put faith in themselves. You see, the standard for godly living it's summed up by Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if that is the target, then every single one of us, if we really, if we're really honest with ourselves, every single one of us falls short of that. One One way of understanding sin is exactly this. So you've got the target here and we're like aiming the arrow, the arrow being our lives. And every single one of us, when we fire that arrow and we try and live in a way that constantly honors God, constantly loves God, constantly loves those around us in the same way that we want to be treated with ourselves, every single one of us, our arrows are going to fall drastically short. You see, if you're going to come to God on your own merit, you've got to consistently and completely love God and love others. If you're anything like me, if you stop and ponder the last 24 hours of your life, you will know that our arrows fall short. Every single one of us, this Pharisee included, falls far short of the mark. Not only did the Pharisee have an inflated view of himself, he thought he was better than he really was, he also had a deflated view of God. What do I mean by that? Well, the Pharisee thought that it was possible to put God in his debt. He draws near to God and he says, look at all this good stuff that I've done. Look, look at all the other people. They're terrible. I'm amazing. So you have to bless me. See, he presumed that God had to bless him because of how he'd lived, how he'd followed the rules, all the ways that he'd checked the box. And in doing so, He turned almighty God into a cosmic vending machine who is bound to bless anybody in response to outward good works. The Pharisee held the belief that it's humanly possible for a person to earn good standing with God. And he trusted in himself that he had done enough to approach God with confidence. But we know From Jesus' assessment of the Pharisee's heart, that he didn't go home justified that day. What does that mean? Well, the word justified, it's a legal term, and it speaks of someone having a right record with God. Of someone who has no record of wrong held against them in the presence of God Almighty. And this would have been a shock to Jesus' listeners. The fact that the Pharisee walked away from the temple and he wasn't justified, they would have have said, hang on, on, what? It would have been shocking to them because they would have assumed that out of those two men, Pharisee and the tax collector, if either of those two men was going to go home justified, then surely it would be the Pharisee. So if the Pharisee didn't go home with God's approval, what was it about the tax collector's approach that meant that he did? Well, let's look at the tax collector in a bit more detail. First Jesus says that the Pharisee sorry, First Jesus says that the tax collector stands far off with his eyes held low. So earlier on, we looked at the picture of the, of the temple. I want you to imagine it in more of a 3D sense now. Imagine that the outer court was this block, this entire block, and then this is the kind of inner sanctuary where we are now. And the Holy of Holies, by the way, would be where the drums are, which is great because I'm a drummer, so. It's the best, the best place in the whole church, isn't it, where the drums are. So the, the tax collector would be right up, right? He'd be on, like, the junction of, like, 38th and Burke, right? Like, literally, he would be on the very, very, very outer edges of the temple, and what does, that, what does that tell us about the Pharisee? Well, we don't know this for certain, but the fact that Jesus says that the, that the tax collector stands at a distance, surely that means that the Pharisee went in much closer, that he presumed to go much closer to God. But the tax collector he does not presume to draw near to God, showing that his understanding of himself and God is fundamentally different to the Pharisee's. You see, the tax collector knows that he doesn't have anything to boast about before God. That if he's going to come to God, he comes utterly empty-handed. He has a view which is the the Bible's view, that God dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, and who is completely holy, completely set apart from humanity. He stands as far away as he can. It's almost like if the wall was here, he'd be, like, he'd be standing like this, as far as he possibly can from God. He doesn't want to take any steps closer to God in his own strength. And next we read that he's striking his chest over and over again. Striking his chest. And this shows a deep sorrow at the condition of his own heart. You see, the tax collector grieves his own sin. It absolutely brings him into a a state of utter sorrow when he thinks about the ways in which he's wronged God and the ways that he's wronged others. Do we mourn the state of our own hearts? A state of mourning should not be the normal stance for a Christian. That that shouldn't be our constant posture. That, That wouldn't be in line with with the good news of the gospel, but if we're never grieved by our own failure to love God and others, then perhaps we haven't grasped who we really are and who God really is. If you want an example, look at the life of Jesus. If you read through the pages of the New Testament, you just can't help but be in awe of, of the tenderness of the sky, the compassion of the sky, the love of the sky the generosity of this person. He's constantly blowing our minds with with his goodness. And see, that's the comparison. It It doesn't matter if you're the best person in the room. It doesn't matter if you're the best person in Seattle. Are you Jesus Christ? Did you live a life like his? And hopefully, hopefully all of our answers to that question is a resounding no. Next, we read that the tax collector cries out for mercy to God. He has this short, repeated prayer. It's only seven words long. Jesus says that he repeats it. He kept saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. See, the tax collector, he doesn't come to God with a list of his own achievements. And he doesn't come to God and point the finger of blame at other people. The only thing he says about himself, the only word that he uses to describe himself, is that of a sinner. And then he throws himself on the mercy of God. Now, the the Greek word that we translate into mercy here in English, it comes from a a word group in Greek that only appears twice in all of the New Testament. And whenever that happens, it's really important to kind of sit and, and take notice. Because if a word is used rarely, it was probably chosen carefully. And it appears once here in Luke 18, 13. And then it appears in Hebrews 2, 17. And it's it's getting after this idea that in order to have mercy, you have to have what's called atonement. The tax collector asks God for mercy based on an act of atonement. And see, here's another key difference in these two men. The Pharisee goes to God, trusting himself with his his chest out. The tax collector stands at a distance. And he says, God, have mercy, because of the atoning work of another. See, remember, the tax collector was Jewish, He'd grown up all his life with the teaching that God's mercy on his people collectively always came through an act of sacrifice. Why does this matter? Why go into detail on this? Well, the tax collector is helping us grasp that the only way to approach God rightly is to do so on account of the sacrifice of another See, the tax collector was, he was trusting in the sacrifices of the priests. As I mentioned earlier, in the temple, it was a place where the priests made sacrifices on behalf of the people. And God showed mercy on the basis of those sacrifices. So he knew and trusted those sacrifices. He knew that those sacrifices were the only reason that God would look mercifully upon him. Unlike the Pharisee, who trusted in his own good works. But here's, the, here's the amazing news. See, we live, we live in a privileged time because unlike the tax collector, we are living post-Jesus death and resurrection. See, the tax collector was trusting in the sacrifices that were made on a daily and then a yearly basis and it just went on and on, next year, another sacrifice, next year, another sacrifice, next year, another sacrifice. But Hebrews 10 verse 12 tells us that we can come to God based on Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. It says this, But this man, that's Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, Jesus' sacrificial death once for all, for the sins of the world, means that from that point on, no more sacrifices are necessary. The writer to the Hebrews goes on in chapter 10, 19, and 22 to write this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Do you see the glorious promise in these verses? You see, the tax collector, as we were saying, he'd be up there, 38th in Burke, he'd be as far from God as he possibly could be. But it says this in, in, the, in these verses, in Hebrews 10, it says we get to draw near to God. Not because of our own good works, not because of the things that we've done, not because we're better than other people, but purely on what Jesus has done once for all. So God doesn't leave us on the outer edges. God calls us into his presence to gaze at his face, to have that intimacy with him. We're drawn into a much more intimate relationship than the tax collector had precisely because we live after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the good news. This is what's gripped Andrew and Matt's hearts in such a way that they wanted to make a public declaration today of their love and trust in Jesus. So as I wrap up, If you aren't a follower of Jesus here today, I really hope that today's message has given you some things to ponder. You see, the great truth of this passage is that nobody is too far from God. It's impossible to be too far from God because it's not about us. It's not about us being good enough. So no life is a lost cause. Nobody is beyond the mercy of God. And I hope that you know that all you have to do is just call out to God for mercy. Just like the tax collector did. He just called out to God. It's so simple. Seven words. It just said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what it looks like if you want to make Jesus Lord and Savior. It's just a simple ask. It's saying, Jesus, I want to make you my Lord. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that you've done. The lesson we learn from the, from the tax collector is all we have to do is ask. It really is as simple as that. And God, God's posture, the Bible says, is that he's kind of like on the edge of his seat. Like as soon as someone asks for mercy, like it's, his, it's his utter joy to come to you in that moment and to meet with you. And to teach you of, of what he's done and, and what he wants to do through you as well. God's on the edge of his seat. He isn't distant. And he does want all people to be saved. So I I I would just gently ask, would you consider these things today? And if you're a Christian here, let's be on guard that we don't fall into the trap that the Pharisee had. He'd fallen into that trap of pointing out others' failures so that he looked better. He had his Excel sheet, he was filling it out. I've done this, tick, I've done this, tick, I've done this, tick. And he thought that that was good enough. He'd neglected his heart. he neglected the core of his being. Outwardly, he was great. Inwardly, not so great. Let's never get to the point in our Christian journey where we rank ourselves and look down on others. May we never approach God with with chest puffed out, but in humility. And would God spare us from doing all the right things, outwardly, but with cold hearts? There's a simple prayer that I I pray most days. And you just, it's, you wake up and the fir- I guess the first moment that you kind of reminded of of God's it's it's to say God. Your mercy is in you every morning. And it's a prayer that I pray, you know, it's a prayer that I pray every day because I need the mercy of God. There isn't a single day that goes by where if I wake up the next day and I don't think I need God's mercy, then, then I, I'm, I'm slipping into that pharisaical mindset. I'm slipping into that, that mode of thinking, hang on a minute, I'm pretty good here. I think I'm all right before God. Maybe wake up every morning and say, your mercies are new every morning. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your words. I thank you that in just five short verses you're able to just go so deep, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity to unpack these words, Lord, and we thank you so much, God, that we get the the immense privilege, Lord, of, of sitting under your word and sitting under your teaching. Thank you that the Bible's been translated into English. Thank you that we can read it. And I thank you so much, Lord, for, for the truth and life that is found within it, Lord. And thank you for the truth and life found in you. Thank you that your word points us to you. Every, in every page, it, it points us to Jesus. So yeah, Jesus, thank you for all that you are. Thank you for that once and for all sacrifice. Thank you for meeting us in our hour, in hour of need. Thank you that if we humbly come to you, you won't turn us away that you draw us in the air, that you you let us gaze upon your face, that you bring us into an intimate relationship with you. What a glorious thing. I just pray, Lord, that as we just continue to worship in song, and as we just continue to ponder the the testimonies we heard earlier, and uh, all of the things that we've we've listened to today, God, would you just have all the glory, and just draw us close to yourselves. Sorry, draw us close to yourself, with soft hearts, and hearts that are overflowing with gratitude and love. In your great name, amen.